Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wartman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in today. We have been uh, talking about, uh, at the beginning of the show over the last couple days, uh, the councils that make up U.S. soccer. And um, on Monday's show, we, 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 we got into a little bit of the overview of the structure of the Federation and why we have some of the issues that we have. And, and some of it comes down to the way U.S. soccer has structured itself uh, in terms of the councils. And, uh, and I often refer to those as silos uh, because they, they're, not, they're not working together. And it's because they're not constructed to work together. The system and structure of our, of our federation is not one that unifies. Instead, it turns organizations against one another. They compete in areas where we shouldn't be competing, and it weakens our ability to compete in areas where we need to compete. And uh, today, uh, to, to open the show, we're talking about the professional council. So a couple days ago, we talked about the youth council, and we talked about the mess and the alphabet soup there at the, at the youth council and how you have clubs literally driving past other clubs just because they play with a different sanctioning organization for matches, which increases cost, it increases time, and these are all arbitrary marketing labels because these organizations are not working in unison with the Federation. And really, it's it's a lot of redundancy. We don't need all of that. Um, and And really what we need is localized competition that you have everybody in an area playing in the same system and may the best teams become champion and play in the regional setups and so on and so forth. And everyone should be in one connected system of leagues, no gatekeepers, none of that. And we're going to get into, into, into some of the solutions and, and how things should look like um, a little later on. Um, but Today, we're, we're getting into another council, which is the professional council. And like the youth council and like the adult council, there are some similar things going on here. U.S. soccer says that its, its mission and its goal is to make soccer in its preeminent forms, uh, in all of its forms, the preeminent sport, I should say, uh, in, in the country. Well, it has a hard time of doing that when it pits leagues against one another. And we talked some about that on uh, on the, the Youth Council segment. We talked about some of that during our adult amateur um, uh, segment as well. And, and today uh, in the Pro Council segment, it, it gets even more magnified. And part of that is we it's it's gone it's gotten to the place where we have legal challenges real legal challenges and we're not talking about a frivolous lawsuit we're talking about lawsuits that are going that are already in the millions of dollars in legal fees because of the way the federation is conducting its business now we can say that the federation has abdicated its duties and responsibility at the youth level and we can also say the same about the adult amateur space that they've not really set up um guidelines, provisions, sanctions for leagues and clubs to get into alignment with one another. That has not happened. In the adult, uh, excuse me, in the professional council of professional leagues, 
it has gotten a lot more hands-on in that arena, in that space. And that has primarily happened over the last couple decades. And that has coincided with Major League Soccer. As Major League Soccer has gotten more powerful within the Federation, as it has made more money off of the Federation, as it has continued to be in business with the Federation, professional standards for leagues have become more and more strictly enforced. Why? To keep competitors at bay. They do not want to see the USL, nor NISA, or the NASL compete against them. They do not want that competition. So you will find professional league standards that are part of this whole pro council segment that are written in ways to make it very difficult to remove Major League Soccer or reduce Major League Soccer's power and privilege. And it's it's a very big deal. Don Garber makes a lot of money off of U.S. soccer. He is a board member of U.S. soccer. And when I say a lot of money, I'm talking about millions of dollars. The man has personally made millions upon millions of dollars as the CEO of Soccer United Marketing that has a no-bid contract with the U.S. Soccer Federation. He also makes... Uh, he's also at the same time, the commissioner of major league soccer. And you say, well, so he's running two companies within the professional council and, and in conjunction with you like how, what, how does that work? Well, actually what, what it is, is that major league soccer owner operators own two companies and they're kind of like Siamese companies. So we can keep money over here in the soccer United marketing portfolio We keep that money away from the players and invest it back into the game on the field by crying poor over here. And Don Garber gets to merge that gap in between and he's made himself a fortune. What has come as a, as a result of that is he is also hoarded for himself power. He is a board member of the nonprofit organization he has a no-bid contract with that gives him personally millions of dollars. Now, this perch, this seat, means that he becomes the biggest gatekeeper of all, the biggest power broker within U.S. soccer. Even if leagues want to do something creative, something authentic football, authentically soccer, like get on a follow the spring calendar, like institute solidarity payments and training compensation up and down the system, like institute promotion relegation and make entrance into their leagues based on how a team performs on the field. What a novel idea. Reward the champions with the ability to play in a higher league the next year. You know, the way the the rest of the world does. The actual leagues we watch on TV. But instead, that doesn't happen here. Why? Because it threatens his payday. You see, he makes money 
off of expansion fees. He makes money off of keeping others at bay. That's how he's accrued his personal fortune. There's a reason why when Don Garber says every dollar that doesn't go to MLS or through MLS is a dollar lost. It's why rumors have been swirling about them getting into the youth soccer business because it's billions of dollars in the youth soccer economy. Now, it's not all centralized in one spot. It's not like you're going in to make a power play into one arena and you're going to try to get your hands on that billions, but the ecosystem is worth billions of dollars. Why wouldn't Major League Soccer want to get in there and control that space, infiltrate it to keep their power within the Federation for generations to come? The professional council is not set up in, a, in an aspect of equality when it comes to genders. We already know the, the lawsuits when it comes to the U.S. Women's National Team and Hope Solo with the Federation and their lack of equal treatment, lack of equal pay. But we also see this in the lack of equal voting. West Virginia Soccer Association submitted a policy proposal that would ensure that professional women's leagues were treated equally to men's professional leagues when it came to voting power. There were all kind of roadblocks thrown out by the board of directors claiming that there's just no way they could do this. And then they said, hey, we'll take care of it ourselves. Nothing happened. Why? Because it is something Don Garber doesn't want. If Garber was in favor of equality when it comes to women's soccer, we would have equality in women's soccer. Plain and simple. If you're looking at the U.S. Soccer Federation and thinking that the fight is with the Federation, it is, but it's not with who you think it is with. The person who holds the power and the cards within that professional council is Don Garber. He's the one who doesn't want to see the NWSL, the Women's Professional Division I League, be treated equally. He's the one who wants to make sure he keeps his power. And as we were talking about yesterday, that if you were an amateur club and a a community club that was formed in your community, in your city, and you were to win and you were to, to work your way into a state league and get promoted and play your way into a regional league, and you, you start to build a, a real organization that has support, has community support, has investors that come to the table and say, hey, look, man, let, let's start paying our players. Let's start putting more money into this. This thing is growing. It's doing well. Let's keep going. Let's see how far we can go. Now you get to a professional level. Well, in the rest of the world, that would be a great thing. In U.S. soccer, that's not always the best scenario. There are roadblocks and hurdles one after another. 
You have net worth ownership requirements. You have to get admitted into a league, not based on whether you're good enough, not based on whether you earned it on the field, but whether the country club says yes and extends you an invitation. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like competitive merit to me. Our professional soccer, our professional council should be focused on creating the highest level of play in the world. It should be where every player in the world dreams of coming to to play. And it should be where every club in America aspires to get to or at least develop players for. But that's not the case. Instead, we have a system that limits player wages, that it limits access to clubs. It limits access to entire regions of the country arbitrarily because we have embraced at the federation level gatekeepers. And the biggest gatekeeper of all, the biggest gatekeeper of all is Don Garber. Our sponsor uh, for the show today is DuckTickBrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G, Brand.com. And um, if you're watching the show over the last few days, you're trying to figure out, hey, man, where, where could I go to write down some notes? Like, this is some interesting information I didn't even realize. You could order you a notebook. Order you a journal from DuckTickBrand today at DuckTickBrand.com and use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of that order at DuckTickBrand.com. We'll be right back after the break with part two of our interview with Vince McConnell.
back into the show. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we are joined by Vince McConnell of McConnell Athletics. He is a personal performance coach. And uh, full disclosure, he, he works with uh, my oldest son, Jaden, and, uh, and I've seen his work up close. And I wanted to bring him on the show to talk a, a little bit about working with and training athletes. You've got an advantage. You may not know it yet, but you're going to have an advantage. How important is adversity to uh, athletes who excel? Um, you know, this concept of adversity, it could be your home life. It could be the fact that you were not the biggest, fastest, strongest when you were smaller. It might be, uh, you know, the financial situation in your family. I mean, there's a, there's all sorts of things. It could be the fact that you, you don't, you don't win every trophy as a kid and it drives you, whatever the case may be, but how important is adversity in shaping and building resilient and, and high performing athletes who are able to, uh, you know, have good, uh, and long and, you know, careers that excel. I'm not going to give you the popular answer with that because the popular answer would be, or the, the standard company line would be, Oh, adversity makes you better. Adversity is always a good thing. Well, how much adversity, you know, I mean, how, I mean, in other words, where do we define, Oh, it's good for a kid to be without you know, food on the table. It's good for a kid to be without. The reality is I've trained plenty of kids that have lived in adversity that are loaded with talent that wind up in, really bad situations in their adult life. So they did not benefit from the adversity. I've known kids that have dealt with adversity that have thrived. I've known kids that did not have much adversity. They pretty much lived, um, you know, without any concern about knowing where anything was ever going to come from that turned out not only to be good athletes, great athletes going and playing college, but ended up being really good people. So the adversity thing, it always comes back to this, Daniel. If adversity can eliminate indifference, it's a good thing. If having everything done for you and having everything available for you creates indifference, it's a bad thing. So anything that is going to eliminate indifference, and the, th and the reason that I keep bringing that word in is because you can go through adversity and have, you know, have come from a single home family, your mom's maybe working four jobs, You've got siblings that are all in trouble. You've got the worst of the worst environment. And if that causes you to have a chip on your shoulder and to look at life like you're, you've gotten the raw end of the deal, you've gotten, you know, everything just tends to not work out for you and you take that mindset, it's not productive. It does create a certain sense of, well, I'm just going to be in control of my life by sabotaging it. Because people want control more than anything else. They want to be able to feel like they're in a sense of control. And that was, I'm trying to think, the other day I was on a podcast and we were talking about that very topic about where when things don't go the way you would hope that they would go, there are one or two ways you can either respond to that in a productive way about, okay, this is what I'm in control of, or you can look at it as I'm going to gain a certain sense of control. It's like if you're driving along and you get a flat tire and you go, gosh, I wish that hadn't happened. Well, I'm going to take control. I'm going to puncture the other three. You know, it's like, okay, now where have you gotten? You feel there's a certain sense of feeling like, okay, now I'm back in control because I did that. And I know it's a really simple 
probably oversimplified example, but adversity can, you can't depend on adversity. Like when somebody goes, if I'd never gotten injured, if I'd never done this to my knee, if I'd never done, I wouldn't have worked as hard as I, and I go, okay, that may be true, but the reality is you could have had that without having to go through the injury. But in a case like an isolated case like that, Daniel, somebody may have responded and they may have been indifferent and that led to them getting the injury and then them going through that adversity, they come out the other side and then they're better off. And then you have the other side of that where somebody could be doing everything that they needed to do right and then they have an injury. And then that causes them to respond almost in an indifferent way of like, well, I guess this isn't for me. I guess I should move, you know, I guess sports is just not for me because I've been working so hard and then this happens. So adversity cannot be, it can be something that can spur on greatness but it all comes down to that word of indifference. If it's going to create indifference or eliminate indifference is going to be the deciding factor. So indifference is the bigger key. It's eliminating indifference more so than uh, adversity um, in terms of, of uh, you know, building the kind of competitive character you need to be successful. It is eliminating indifference more than embracing adversity, if I'm understanding. Sure. Correct. Correct. Because like, for instance, if somebody was to um, tell you without that tragic event in my life, I never would have done A and B. Okay. Um, now that's good that you've turned that into a positive and then you yourself have, um, have come to a solution in your mindset to understand I got to move forward. And this is, you know, I can't do anything about what happened. This is a good thing going forward. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have had the mindset that I have now. I would have been, I would have taken life in a complacent way. Then again, that should be something that's applied specifically to that person, as opposed to some kind of testimonial of this is how you get successful is you have some tragic event happen in your life. You have some horrible thing happen that causes you to have to see what you have to work with it. You know, that saying, you don't know how, what you have until it's gone. You know, that, that doesn't have to be true. It's better to know what you have and to not lose it and to continue to push forward with that. So it's not necessary to go through the adversity to go, Oh, now I'm going to start doing something with what I have. I mean, I think it's better to not have that knock back and be able to continue. But the, and when I say that, that's, that sounds ideal, but there are ways that we can get that across to individuals, especially with, um, with athletes, is that, okay, hey, you're doing good, you're doing well, let's stay on top of things, let's stay on this, let's stay competitive uh, you know, with yourself, let's stay in a, in a proactive mindset. This is not the time that you go, okay, I'm there, you know, I'm there, I don't have to do anything. You know, I got the, I got the scholarship to, to Alabama, Auburn, LSU, now I'm good. You know, it's like, no, that, now you're just starting. All that is, is next stage. All that is, now you've got to apply yourself in the very same way that you did to even get to this point. You've got to turn it up a whole nother level of accountability than you would have otherwise. So it always goes, you know, again, the, the thing about the adversity, it's like, okay, where, am I in my mindset of what I need to do today? Do I need something, you know, adverse to happen to cause me to do the things that I need to do today to get better? I mean, that's the question to ask an athlete that has not hit that adversity yet and say, this is where we are. 
This is where you want to go. These are the steps that you need to take. Do, do you need to have this taken away for you to be able to recapture it and to move forward? And I know that's a kind of a mature question to ask, but the thing is if a kid is old enough to be able to respond to adversity in, in a beneficial way, they should be able to handle that question and look at it and go, hey, you're right. It's like, okay, don't do your homework. These are the consequences. Do you need to have these consequences to know that you should have done your homework? You know, that kind of thing. It's like goes right back to the keep it simple when you're communicating this, even speaking in metaphor or um, symbolically as opposed to the specifics. In other words, you don't need to go up to a kid and say, hey, you know, do you need a this this to happen and that to happen that, that maybe is specific to them talking generality so that they don't love, develop a level of fear when you're talking to them so you talk about it in a way of of um you know you know do you need to spill that off the, look that's right on the edge of the table do you need that to fall off the table so that you know then then you wish that you had it to drink <laughs> you know that kind of thing you know it's right. kind of speaking a way where they kind of go hey that makes sense go no okay well then what do you do don't let it be on the edge of the table so bring it back here, you don't need the, quote, adversity of spilling your drink and not having it to go, darn, I wish I'd brought that back over here instead of letting that, you know, letting that happen. So it's, it's more about that. Are you always in control? Absolutely not. But it comes back to as long as the athlete, as long as the individual is taking a proactive mindset instead of reactive, then they're less likely to have those negative things that happen. And if they do, they're going to respond in a more readily way as opposed to, you know, like I said before, do the self-sabotage and go, okay, well, that just means, you know, I'm not supposed to, you know, pursue this career. I'm not supposed to play this anymore. I'm not supposed to, because then that level of indifference comes back again. And why do they choose indifference? Because it gives them a sense of control in that environment because people always want to, it's kind of like if, like when we were younger and you had a girlfriend and you're thinking maybe you ought to break up with her and she's probably thinking maybe she should break up with you. You want to be the one to break up with her and you don't do it. So you wait and then she comes and breaks up with you and you go, wait a minute, hold on. What are you talking about? No, you know, see, it's like, wait a minute, that was what you were going to do anyway. You right. Know, see, but it's the, uh, I want to be the one, you know, controlling it. You know, I want to be the one controlling the thing. Well, see, that's the, that's where that self-sabotage comes in. Is like if somebody doesn't think they've got what it takes, they tend to make some bad decisions and go, well, see, you know, see, I, you know, that it was, it was the coach's fault. It was their fault. It was, you know, you know, I tweaked my hamstring and that's, that's why, you know, I always get the bad breaks. Okay. That's something that you have to be aware of when you, when you start talking about adversity is that you want to, you don't want adversity to be an excuse for someone to cash their chips in. Yeah, I mean, personal experiences, you know, speaking of adversity, is, is often the, the, the type of learning that hurts the most and costs you the most, uh, rather than learning from, from others, which uh, I think you, you so uh, eloquently put there. Um, last uh, topic I wanted to, 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 you know, get some thoughts from you on is we're in this pandemic and, uh, you know, certain parts of the country are starting to ease restrictions and come out of the pandemic in terms of, you know, business and, and athletes, you know, we we're looking at some of these professional leagues, uh, around the world when we're talking about the sport of soccer. Um, but it, even in America with some of the other sports like the NBA, major league baseball are all having these conversations about, you know, 
getting back to business, back to players training, et cetera. Um, how important is it as these players get back into, uh, you know, competition and, and training to get, you know, ready for, for either starting or restarting uh, their seasons? How important is it for them to, you know, to, to do it in, in a smart way rather than just kind of thinking, hey, it's like flipping a light switch you know, I was, I was rare, rare and ready to go. And then, you know, a few weeks ago I, I had to stay home and now I'm going to flip the switch and just go right back to, to where I was overnight rather than kind of ramping back up through uh, a well thought out process. How important is that for these athletes? Uh, it goes back to the mindset aspect as well, because that's something that when, and, and again, it depends on the type of athlete that we're dealing with. If we're talking about college and high school athletes, let's, let's specifically for a moment, just talk about them, that are used to being in a high school program, that are used to being in a college program. And it's almost 365 that there's a level of accountability with that. There's a sense of belongingness with, with a team like that as far as the structure goes. And there hasn't been that. I mean, I know they get on the Zoom calls and, and do things like that, and, they, um, and I've seen the programs that some of these college top level college coaches send the kids, but they don't have, they haven't had the facilities to even be able to do those workouts. So there is um, definitely the need to take it in a very deliberate process on the return, as opposed to like, you know, having the, you know, everybody's been caged up, man, bam, now we're going to unleash it. And then everybody's going to come back and just start going, you know, crazy with their, with their training. There's, uh, there's going to be a lot of consequences and, and um, things that we don't want if that is the case. And I, I would especially say that with high school programs because they're going to be more apt to just wanting the kids back and getting them running and doing all kinds of things that just you know, um, are dynamic and, um, and uh, that they can see and test them to see where they are if they've been doing anything you know, outside of um, you know, the, you know, while they've been on this, in this pandemic or on quarantine or however we want to, you know, whatever situation they've been in. But the point is, is that the deliberate steps of injury prevention first from a physical standpoint are not only going to help you from a physical aspect, but they're going to help you psychologically to be able to develop that momentum that is essential to get back to where they, you're not going to get, back 100% to where you would be this time of the year anyway. But the point is, is that you've got to get as close to that degree as possible. And you don't do that by skipping steps, you know, where you go, okay, we've missed two months. Now we got to forget about those two months. We got to just jump right into this space. That would be the most unwise thing that they could do. I believe that most of the kids are going to be excited to be back to some type of normal normalcy. So you're not going to have to, uh, reel them in from a motivational standpoint. That being said, you can't use that excitement or that um, that you know amazing amount of energy to to go. Okay, we just gotta test them. We gotta see where they are. We gotta we gotta forget about the phases that we didn't get in the um, in the winter in the in the spring. We gotta just you know go fast forward. So the program needs to be. Yeah, almost when I say not at a, um, at a beginner level in the sense where there's not a training effect, but there definitely needs to be one where you're like, we're going to take two weeks 
and we're going to just show up and start to get some momentum, start to develop some, you know, get the mobility back, get, get our movement patterns where they need to be from a strength standpoint, build a conditioning base, because not every athlete is going to be at the same level because some of them have been training harder than others. Some of them have been working harder than others. Some of them have been conditioning. Some of them haven't. When you're talking about an individual, that's, you're in more control of that because you can take them and see where they are on a day-by-day basis and then make the step progressions that way. From a team standpoint, you've got to look at it as what is the, the, um, the degree of the 25% of our athletes that are in the worst condition. We need to look at that right there as our baseline for the first couple of weeks. So we need to assume they have not been, because otherwise you're going to have at least that percentage end up having adverse effects, whether they're injuries, and you certainly can't afford now with all this time missing or missing all this time having a spur of injuries. So see, that would be the other thing that that would be a huge setback right now. So you've got to mind it and go, okay, um, injury prevention first is going to be our first line of action and then start to develop it into a, a more aggressive um, physical part. But that's, that, that's a real challenge because you really don't know what they've been doing compared to them used to being in a program really around the clock in some way. And then these multi-sport athletes, they're used to playing sports all year long. So they've been, you know, at home. And, yeah, you can go out and run in the neighborhood and do things like that. But it's not the same when you're within the environment of that sport. I I agree. That was, uh, you know, looking at where we are, I've just, you know, a lot of fans are, are, are hoping, you know, okay, leagues could get back on this date and i'm sitting there going like man they've got to they got to get back in the groove (laughs) well well, nutritionally too daniel i mean that's another thing is that some of these kids you don't know what they've been doing from a nutrition standpoint you don't know how much sleep they've been getting you don't know in in general you don't know what they've been doing with their lifestyle so there's a lot of the unknown that you know like you take a football program and this is something that that hasn't been talked about a lot it hasn't been um discussed much and and for you know whether it's for political reasons or what have you but the thing is there's a group of these three to five star athletes that were used to having things you know there for them and then you send them all back home and now they've been back in that environment these are guys that have been at college then they go back home and then they go back to that home environment that they might not have been in in three years two or three years and you don't know what they're exposed to. You don't know what they're, they don't have available to them. And so that's that unknown because typically like a football player at the college level is home three weeks out of the year. And that's three weeks in May. The rest of the time they are on campus, except for maybe a weekend here or there. That's division one football, you know, say at any SEC school. So for only three weeks out of the year, they're on campus. Now you've sent them home without any preparation. I mean, you basically just said everybody's got to go home for at least two months and, you know, longer because it's going to continue to to go and progress. The time is or accumulate. So now you're like, what, what's coming back? What kids are we going to have coming back into this program? Um, Aside from they're not going to be in the kind of physical condition that we want, but, 
what kind of overall condition, what kind of mindset, what environment have they been in? What have they been exposed to from a, you know, stuff that they shouldn't be doing, you know, from a daily lifestyle. I mean, those are things that are a great concern that nobody seems to want to touch on because they're like, Oh, well, you say that, then you're starting to, you know, talk about things. That, and so that right there is going to be that ghost in the machine, so to speak, because we aren't going to know. So if you take SEC football players or ACC, any power five, and you bring them back, say in, there we go. Um, you bring them back in July at some point and you go, okay, we got a month to get ready for the season. You're not, you really don't know what you're dealing with to start with. That's why you need to start at that level, like I said, and assume the, the, the condition of the bottom 25%. That's where we're going to start. And then if we're further along, then we'll ramp it up. But we need to start there and then gradually, as opposed to, hey, we got the whole, all the guys back, everybody back. We're going to go right back into what we would be doing this time of the year. You need to scale it back to way back to what you would be doing back in the spring and then gradually bring it along. And if you have to miss that last three weeks of peak training that you normally would have in early August, well, then so be it. You know, you have to trust that injury prevention is going to be better than trying to push the envelope with your performance training. Performance training is only as good as injury prevention. Right. So when somebody goes, oh, no, we got to gotta, gotta work explosiveness. We got this, we got that. We have all this plan. This is what we need leading into game one, the end of August. All right. Well, if you're injured, it isn't going to matter. So you have to – and you can't get injured and then say, I wish we weren't injured. Once you're injured, it's done. So you have to look at it as we cannot afford an injury. And so on that end, I would take it, scale it way back with those guys and literally just say, we're going to show up healthy enough to play. And then the advantage is you can progress these guys into the season this year and get them even better conditioned in midseason, whereas typically there's a little bit of a fall off by the time that you get to the end of October. Then you can start looking at it like, hey, we're going to approach this where we're not going to be at our best in September. We're going to be at our best probably somewhere in October now, but we're going to be even better as we start to get into November, and we're going to be in a better peak condition than we would be when we're into late October and November than we would be otherwise. See, again, you turn a negative narrative into something positive. Yeah, you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of diet and, and nutrition and, and different things that these athletes, they're not home uh, you know, especially once they get into these college programs, they're not home particularly a, a big amount of time throughout the year while they're in their college career. Um, I, I think back to uh, like Michael Phelps uh, when he was swimming in, in the uh, uh, Olympics um, and, you know, the amount of calories that uh, that guy was consuming to to be able to um, you know, stay, you know, stay on top and, and build his body to be able to compete and perform. Um, I mean, it's not like he was going and, 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 you know, uh, putting down like, you know, a sack of uh, cheeseburgers at Burger King, you know, it was a tons and tons of calories, but it was all about, you know, fuel and refuel to, to, to get him back in the pool. Um, and, and so building all of that is part of, you know, obviously the mental piece that we've talked about today as well as the physical piece, but 
uh, reminded me a little bit of, of some of the things he's talked about in the past about the, the, the dietary things that, that play a, a large part of that a, a, along with sleep and rest, et cetera, for recovery. So look, I, I appreciate yeah, yeah, all, yeah, I was gonna say, all of that that you just mentioned. That's so directly involved in injury prevention. You know, so the thing is, it's not just about a kid gaining weight or losing weight. It's the fact that those nutritional and rest and recovery components are essential. That's why they spend so much time at those schools doing that. So you can't throw that out now and say, well, it doesn't matter. We really didn't need it anyway. And then we're just going to start with these kids. Because imagine if you took a kid out of a program or took five kids out of a program um, two months ago, and said, you're not going to show back up until July with the staff at that particular college go, oh, he's good. He's good to go. You know, he's good. Of course not. You would look at it and say, well, he's not even close to being prepared. Well, see, they're going to have to look at that with every player, every athlete. That's going to be the difficult challenge for them because if you can say, oh, they're ready to go from zero to 60, you know, in a week, well, then you're saying that all of this prep time that you normally go through is really irrelevant in just something that's just pomp and circumstance. So it's, you know, so you can't have it both ways. You have to look at it as that is all important, all relevant to our performance level, our injury prevention. So we have to go back to that step and make sure that we see and make an honest assessment of where we are on that. If we have a group that has been doing their due diligence and they're ready, then we can step it up. But we've got to scale everything back and see where everybody is. Like I said, the same way I would do it with an individual, they need to do it with an entire program. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very big, uh, important point. Vince, I appreciate your time today um, and, and for sharing your insights on um, athletes and, and high-performance athletes and and. and the mentality, the, the, you know, psychology piece as well. I, I really appreciate you coming on to do that. Um, best of luck. Uh, ho hopefully, uh, you know, things will continue to trend in the right direction and uh, people can get back to, to uh, a safe reality. Uh, and I know, I know uh, folks like you are, are anxious <laughs> for that to, to happen. Oh, yeah. so you, you can get back in the gym with, with all of your athletes. So I appreciate uh, you coming on the show. We, we, we appreciate your time. All right. Awesome time. I appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. That is Vince McConnell of McConnell Athletics, a, uh, and I appreciate him coming on the show. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
Thanks for watching the show today. As always, we appreciate it. Big thanks to uh, Vince for doing that uh, two-part interview with us. Hope you got a lot out of it. Uh, it's a little bit different conversation than we normally have, and I felt like it would be good for a lot of players out there who are thinking uh, about getting back in. You know, some some parts of the country are opening back up, and um, just thought it'd be it'd be a good time to to, to have a. Uh, someone on that that has expertise in that arena. Thanks for watching the show. As always, you can watch at DanielWorkman.com. We'll see you again tomorrow.